This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Confucius, Buddha, Jesus, and Mohammed from the Great Courses series. At least two of those people are pretty important for understanding Japanese history, and I'm told the other two did some important stuff too. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 103, The Path of the Righteous Man. This is one of those stories I first encountered as a bit of a throwaway in a textbook, further proof of the corruption and rot of the Tokugawa system during the early 1800s. And it's absolutely true that this story, well, that's part of it, but it's also an interesting story in its own right. You see, it also sheds light on something I've been thinking about a bit an idea I stole from the fascinating podcaster Dan Carlin, about the notion of an intellectual contagion, an idea that spreads like a virus, and like a virus represents a threat, in this case to the powers that be. Our virus starts with a man named Oshio Heihachiro, born in 1793 in Osaka. At the time, Osaka was the economic heart of Japan. It was home of the largest and most powerful merchant families, presided over by the ten most powerful merchant clans, the Jun and Yogai, who served as the economic managers of the city and controllers of its all-important exchange houses, where, among other things, the rice given to samurai as stipends was converted into currency that could actually be used to buy things. This economic role made Osaka tremendously important. All the wealth of the samurai class, not to mention most of the wealth of the merchants, flowed through it. Thus, it was a strategic imperative for the Tokugawa that Osaka be kept under control, and the city's government was too important to trust to anybody else. Even the most loyal retainer could not be trusted with their finger on the button for the entire economy. Osaka was therefore managed as a direct Tokugawa possession, administered by a governor appointed by the central Bakufu government, one of only a couple of cities to get that kind of treatment. For example, Nagasaki was also administered that way because it was a port city open to foreigners and served an important intelligence-gathering role as a result. Kyoto was administered that way because it was the seat of the emperor, and maintaining control of the emperor was key to the stability of the government. Nikko was managed this way because it's home to Toshogu Shrine, where the deified Tokugawa Ieyasu was enshrined. So only important cities are handled this way. Now, the role of city governor combined some pretty broad powers. You were the city's chief administrator, the head of the city police force, which was made up of lower-level samurai, as well as its chief judge and interpreter of the law. This is a lot of power to give to one person, and as we'll see in a bit, the risk of corruption was very real. The position of city governor, Machi Bugyosha in Japanese, was open only to those of Hatamoto rank, high-ranking direct retainers of the shogun. 
The city, of course, was not your fief. You were just an administrator, not the owner. Now, Oshio Hihachiro, our protagonist for today, was not of high enough birth to do that kind of work. Instead, he belonged to a family of what are called yoriki. Yoriki literally means something like assistant. Their role in the government was to be the middle managers for city government. In particular, yoriki are responsible for the actual running of the city police. They manage basically samurai beat cops called doshin, who are the ones out on the front lines administering justice. Oshio Heihachiro was one of these yoriki, which gave him an up-close view of the way the Osaka government operated. While he was working, he would be exposed to the at-the-time harmless ideas that would end up mutating into our intellectual contagion. Specifically, he read the works of Wang Yangming, a Chinese philosopher who lived during the Ming Dynasty. Wang Yangming was part of the school of what's called Neo-Confucianism. He was an active member of the imperial government, brought down from his high post by intrigue and scheming by a political faction. He retired to China's south, where he took command of several armies charged with suppressing peasant revolts, which, as we'll see given how the episode turns out, is a bit ironic. In his spare time, he wrote philosophy. Wang Yangming rejected the existing Confucian orthodoxy of the time, in particular as it related to ethics. The standard interpretation of Confucian ethics at the time accepted the idea of absolute good. There's an absolute set of moral principles that you have to live by. The way to understand these principles, so the orthodox thinking went, was through study and thought. By thinking intellectually about the world, you can come to understand it better and understand its universal ethical principles. Wang Yangming rejected this idea altogether. The way to understand right and wrong was not through studying stuffy texts, but by trusting your own innate sense. People, so Wang thought, knew right from wrong and good from evil. That knowledge was innate, so you couldn't learn it or improve it via studying. It also wasn't rational. You couldn't and shouldn't try to explain what was good or evil. You should just trust your gut. If something felt wrong, it was probably wrong. To cultivate this skill, Wong took an idea from Buddhism and recommended a form of sitting meditation which would let you come to know yourself better and thus better understand your own moral sense. Wong also promoted an idea known in Chinese as Zhixing Hei, or Chikou Goitsu in Japanese, the idea of the unity of knowledge and action. In other words, it's not enough to just understand what's good and what's evil. It wasn't enough to recognize that one act is good and another is bad. You have a duty to act on that judgment. If you see someone doing bad, you can't just let it happen. Only by relying on our innate sense of ethical good to punish the bad and support the good can we make the world a better place by bringing it into line with the principle of universal good. It's important to note that in Wang Yangming's eyes, this was not carte blanche to engage in violence. To his view, violence was counterproductive because it made people less likely to listen to you and to accept your ideas. If you have to hold a sword to somebody's head to get them to listen to you, well, they're only going to listen for as long as you hold the sword there. Besides, if you get yourself killed, you aren't helping anybody. Wang's ideas were declared unorthodox in China. That doesn't mean that if you talked about them in public, you were going to be executed or anything. It's not the same as, say, in Europe, if you were talking about Anabaptist ideas at the time. But it did mean that if you believed this stuff, you'd probably get kicked out of the government. This was for a simple reason. 
If your idea of what's good and evil can't be understood rationally and has to come from you personally and you have to act on it, the result is going to be chaos if you're a government official. You're all going to be acting based on your idea of what's good, which is going to make central policy basically impossible. I guess the equivalent would be something like if every official in the United States started acting in line with what they thought good policy was, rather than what their superiors were telling them or what the law officially said. It would be chaos. States like Washington could be legalizing outlawed drugs, Governors in the South could be trying to overturn federal immigration policy. Wait, this all sounds really familiar from somewhere. Anyway, once the ideas of Wang Yangming made their way to Japan, the Tokugawa Bakufu government took the same stance as their counterparts in China. Wang Yangming was unorthodox. Unlike the Chinese, however, the Japanese can't just get rid of people who have these ideas very easily. Remember, bureaucratic offices are inherited in Japan. They're passed down along one family. So where are you going to get another replacement? It could be done, but it's not as easy as it was in China, where you could just grab someone with the same civil service credentials. Oshio Heihachiro found the ideas of Wang Yangming as part of a quest of self-introspection. Heihachiro was entirely self-taught. At the age of 15, when he was working through some old records, he discovered he had a famous ancestor a warrior who, in the 1550s, had killed an enemy samurai right in front of the eyes of Tokugawa Ieyasu, and had been rewarded with a bow directly from the hands of the future shogun himself. In his own recollections in 1833, he said, quote, On learning this, I was deeply grieved and felt ashamed at being a petty document writer in the company of jail keepers and municipal officials. It seems my great ambition at the time was to fulfill the will of my ancestor by winning fame as a man of great deeds and heroic spirit. Perhaps that's why I felt constantly frustrated and despondent. Wong wanted to accomplish great things in his work as essentially a policeman, but to do it he needed a firm moral grounding. So he started reading Confucian philosophy in his spare time. At 24, he encountered Wang Yangming's ideas for the first time, and quickly became a convert. Heihachiro's newfound acceptance of the ideas of Wang Yangming caused him to dive headlong into his own career. After all, if you want to act in accordance with your ethical principles to make the world a better place, well, there aren't many jobs better for that than being a cop. He was able to rise pretty quickly within the government because the new city governor appointed in 1820 liked him quite a bit and respected his intellectual talents. Heihachiro was involved in a series of high-profile cases where he became something of a rising star. If you're curious, in one he uncovered an underground Christian cult and arrested its members. In another he prosecuted a bribery scandal involving another yodiki, another government official. And in a third he prosecuted some Buddhist monks who had been consistently violating monastic law. However, Heihachiro also became increasingly disillusioned with the Osaka government during this time. The role of Yoriki meant that while Heihachiro had little status, he had fairly broad authority and thus had a fairly good idea of what was going on behind the scenes. Now, in his later writings, Heihachiro would label the government corrupt, but we should be careful with what comes to mind when we think of that term today. What he labeled corruption was not really money-changing hands, though there certainly was plenty of that, but the tendency of Japanese governors to ignore the plight of the poor. 
Anybody who was outside of the respectable parts of society tended not to get help in times of trouble. Ronin, or the poor, impoverished, or orphans, anyone like that, tended to fall by the wayside. On the other hand, government officials were very solicitous of the wealthy and powerful, even merchants who contributed nothing to society and merely mooched off the work of others. At least, that was the Confucian thinking. For a man like Heihachiro, obsessed with the Confucian notion of righteousness, and, more importantly, the notion of realizing that righteousness on Earth, this was completely out of line. In addition, the city governor who had promoted his career retired in 1830, and was replaced with a new guy with whom Heihachiro did not get on as well. So in 1830, he resigned his government posting and retired outside the city. There he adopted a young boy named Kapunosuke as his son, and opened a school, the Senshindo, or Hall of Mind Cleansing. There he began teaching his own version of Wang Yangming's philosophy and started taking students and followers. Heihachiro also undertook a series of pilgrimages to both Ise Shrine, dedicated to the sun goddess Amaterasu, and to Lake Biwa, northeast of Kyoto, ancestral home of the first Wang Yangming scholar in Japan. During this time, he also began to take a more radical bent. Again, to borrow a Dan Carlinism, his intellectual contagion mutated, making it more dangerous than it had been. You see, remember, Wang Yangming didn't think violence or death in the pursuit of realizing good was a great idea. In the first case, violence tends to make you more enemies than friends, and in the second, you can't do much good if you're dead. Heihachiro, however, rejected this notion. Death in the process of tearing down the bad was preferable to tolerating it. This is a notion totally removed from the original ideas of Wang Yangming, and it opened the door to far more direct action. During this period, Heihachiro also wrote the only work of written philosophy he'd ever produced in his life, the Senshin Dosaki, or Notes from the Hall of Mind Cleansing. Most of the text is an elaborate commentary on Confucian ideas that are utterly incomprehensible if you don't have a strong background in classical Chinese philosophy. Still, bits of his more radical ideas do float through, especially when he talks about being willing to die for your beliefs. So, for example, quote, Ordinary people regard heaven and earth as infinite and everlasting, but their own selves as perishable. Therefore they concern themselves only with giving free rein to their desires, while they are still physically strong. The sages and worthies, on the other hand, regard not only heaven and earth as infinite, but also their own selves. Therefore they are not afraid of the death of the body, but of the death of the spirit. For this reason one does not let one's resolve be moved by external things, nor does one seek long life. One concerns oneself with eliminating human desires and holding firm to the principles of heaven. In addition to discussing the importance of dying for your beliefs, Heihachiro also lay out his idea that all people were essentially one and the same, and mistreating anyone regardless of their background was inherently against the way of heaven. These two ideas, that mistreating others is, to borrow a loaded phrase from Christianity, a sin, and that it's okay to fight and die in the name of upholding your principles, are really what leads to Heihachiro's eventual fate. While Heihachiro and his followers were becoming increasingly radicalized, a horrible famine broke out in Japan, starting in 1833. Historians call it the Temple Famine, from the Nengo, or era name used at the time, 
temple meaning something like guarding heaven. The famines were triggered by a series of unreasonably cold years and torrential rains that badly hindered the harvest for several years in a row. The unseasonable conditions hit everywhere in Japan. Only a few domains managed to weather the storm due to forward-looking agricultural policies, but most domains had few rice stockpiles if any to rely on during times of crisis, and while normally they could rely on the bakufu to send them food aid, the bakufu was in pretty bad shape too. A fire in Edo in 1833 devastated that city, and a very bad earthquake in the Sanriku region the following year also required bakufu intervention. As a result, there was little to spare to help those suffering from famine. The famine took a tremendous toll. In 1836 alone, some 100,000 people died as a result. Average people reacted about how you'd expect. Mass rioting broke out in several cities, with people trying to break into rice stockpiles held by merchants or wealthy samurai. In the process of putting down one of these riot-cum-rebellions, over 500 people were rounded up and crucified as an example to the others. Yes, by the way, the Japanese did use crucifixion as a form of punishment. They appear to have gotten the idea from Christianity, actually, which was probably not the part of the Bible all those missionaries hoped they'd pick up on. In Osaka, the scene was even worse. Remember, this is the center of the rice-for-cash exchange that's at the heart of the Japanese economy, so there's a lot of rice lying around. It's not shared out, though. Osaka merchants instead made a killing selling rice around the country at hugely inflated, or as I'm sure they'd say, market-adjusted, prices. The city government, meanwhile, would not hand out any aid for the average people. Heihachiro was furious at the unwillingness of the government to act. He berated the governor again and again and again to say, step in and help these people. But the governor would not move. So Heihachiro decided that now was the time to act. Knowledge and action had to be won, and he knew the government was in the wrong, so it was time to act. Heihachiro and his followers began distributing a manifesto around the region laying out their demands. The current governor had to be removed, and rice should be redistributed, particularly from merchants, to help out the poor. I'll quote you a bit to give you some of the flavor. Quote, since the time of Ashikaga Takauji, the Son of Heaven has been removed from participating in government and has been deprived of the power to distribute reward and punishment. Therefore, the anger of the people no longer has a place to appeal, and has instead reached Heaven itself. In response, Heaven has sent a series of calamities. Forgetting the humaneness that unites people as one body, the officials of the Osaka Magistrate's office are conducting government for their own selfish ends. They send tribute rice to Edo, but send none to Kyoto, where the emperor himself resides. On top of this, throughout the years, the moneyed merchants of Osaka have accumulated vast profits from interest on loans to the daimyo and appropriated great quantities of rice, living a life of unheard of luxury. Knowing no wants themselves, they have lost all fear of heaven's punishment, and make no attempt to save those who are begging and starving to death in the streets. Now, I have no idea where they got it from, but somehow Hayachiro and his followers managed to get their hands on a cannon, and in April of 1837, they decided to use it. That morning, Hayachiro and his followers leapt into action, firing the cannon into the home of a wealthy merchant, 
and then using fire arrows to burn the mansion to the ground. They then rushed into the Tenma district of Osaka, where most of those involved in city government lived, and burned most of it, before moving on to the riverfront and burning the homes of wealthy merchants suspected of rice hoarding. By this point, some 300 people were part of Heihachiro's little crowd. Bakufu forces in the city were at first confused and lacked leadership, in part because their commanders were more concerned with trying to save their homes from fire than with organizing a defense. However, by 4 p.m., enough of them had rallied together to attack Heihachiro's band. Most of Heihachiro's followers fled after a short battle, and over the coming days the majority turned themselves in or committed suicide. Heihachiro recognized defeat, retreated outside the city along with his adopted son, Kikunosuke, and eventually locked himself in his home and set the building on fire, putting an end to his brief rebellion. Now, what to make of this little rebellion has been a subject of debate ever since it ended. For the Bakufu, obviously, Oshio Heihachiro was a traitor who had turned his back on his oath of loyalty to the Tokugawa. However, a few decades later, as a movement to overthrow the Tokugawa began to come together, Heihachiro became a symbol of righteous and ethical action, and a damning indictment of the Tokugawa government and its failures. What kind of ethical government leaves people to starve in the streets? Some people showed their sympathy for Heihachiro in more indirect ways. A rumor began to spread several years after his death that Heihachiro was actually still alive and had escaped to Nagasaki and from there to China. There, so the rumor went, he and his son had joined the rebellion of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom against the Qing Dynasty. Another rebellion, like Heihachiro's, against a government perceived as corrupt and having forgotten the interest of the people. In some versions of the story, Hong Xiuquan, the man who established the Taiping rebels and created the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, is none other than Oshio Kikunosuke, the son of Heihachiro. Heihachiro's rebellion has had a few different meanings ever since. For some, in the Tokugawa, it was treason, but for Meiji leaders like Itohiro Bumi, he was a model of bravery. For political dissidents during the Meiji period, his philosophy of treating all people as equal mirrored the French ideas of liberty and equality that spoke to them. For Mishima Yukio, a Japanese author we'll be talking about next week, Heihachiro's acts were a sort of nihilistic rejection of conformity in favor of individual bravery. For me, I consider his ideas to be an interesting example of how one small change can take an idea from harmless to terribly threatening in such a short span. Heihachiro may not have won, he didn't seize Osaka or overthrow the Tokugawa, but his condemnation of the failures of the government far outlived him. The same condemnation would appear on the lips of other anti-Tokugawa rebels decades later, when combined with the same idea derived from Wang Yangming, that once you see a problem, you have no choice to act, that's a recipe for revolution. Most of the Meiji rebels knew of him, and several studied his ideas and his rebellion in developing their own strategies to overthrow the Tokugawa. Oshio Heihachiro's rebellion is important in its own right. It, along with all the other crises the Tokugawa faced, undermined confidence in the Tokugawa regime. However, it's equally important because it was the first rebellion by samurai since the 1630s, and because Heihachiro's ideas justified rebellion against the Tokugawa. 
by taking the ideas of Wang Yangming and adding his own spin, he opened the door to justifying rebellion against the Tokugawa because of their failure to care for the people. Heihachiro's intellectual virus may not have caught on in 1837, but it turned out in the end that he was just 31 years ahead of his time. He opened the door to revolution, and while he may not have walked through it himself, the door couldn't really be closed again. That's all for this week. For more on this week's episode, or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for the life and ideas of Mishima Yukio.